0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this This is twit bandwidth for triangulation is brought to you by cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com this is triangulation episode nine recorded march 30th 2011 Ray Kurzweil. So Ray Kurzweil is a a legend, really, uh, in the uh, artificial intelligence business. Uh, He's done so much, uh, uh, including, you know, he's the transhumanist movement. He's um, a scientist. He's a thinker. Um, And he says uh, he wants to live long enough to live forever.
2: And I think we've got him on the line here. Hi, Ray. Oh, we, we have him on the line, but we don't no have him audio. turned up.
0: I don't hear audio. You, if you can get, I think it's a, your end. Uh, okay. Great there to you, be there with you. Go. you. Hi, Ray. It's great okay. to see you.
1: Thank you for joining us. Yeah. yeah. You're you with me you virtually.
0: You've got a, a nice studio there. <laughs> can you hear me? You've got an interesting studio there also. <laughs> interesting <laughs> is the word. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you Are you at MIT? Where are you?
1: I'm at my uh, office. Uh, there's actually a projection system I can project three-dimensionally to venues. I, uh, I So I give about 20 speeches a year using this 3D virtual projection system. So wow. I, as I move around, the audience sees their local background behind me. So, And that- I look 3D, and I'm life-size. I can establish eye contact. So... This what we what we're doing now is just conventional video conferencing, yeah, which is pretty cool. Old fashioned. Uh, you're yeah.
0: very you're very kind. It's
2: pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't 3D, that's Sky- for sure.
1: Skype is, that, is very cool. Is that 3D
2: thing similar to what people would have seen on CNN when they had Will I Am on the election a few years back, or is it a different system?
1: It's a different system. Uh, that allowed you. That was full body. Uh, this system, you see pretty much what you're seeing now. Uh, it looks like I'm standing at a, at a podium. Okay. Uh, and at the venue, they see a podium and it looks like I'm standing behind it. It's called Teleportec. I'm actually the only speaker in the world who has his own system.
0: Oh, that's interesting. We, so you, it's not
2: something you invented?
0: No. We'd have to get one of those.
2: Yeah, we're going to have to put one in the new studio. I'd like,
0: <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to have a Teleportec in our studio. You wouldn't have to leave the house. So, uh, how, you know, one of the challenges talking to you, Ray, is to characterize, uh, to give you a title. Uh,
1: well, I I call myself uh, inventor, author, futurist.
0: That's good. Inventor, author, futurist. And
1: that's that's kind of the order in which things happened. I decided I'd be an inventor when I was five. Uh huh. And so I sort of retired. People, you know, my age start talking about retirement and. Uh, my first thought is I'm never going to retire, but my second thought is I actually did retire when I was five years old because <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing what I love to do. Uh, but I quickly realized that to be successful, timing was critical. I mean, Larry Page and Sergey Brin had a great idea about reverse engineering the links on the internet to create a better search engine, but they did it at exactly the right time. And so realizing this, about 30 years ago, I began to collect a lot of data, being an engineer, I thought I would try to come up with something data-driven. and I started with the common wisdom that you can't predict the future, and discovered that if you measure the underlying properties of information technology, the classic, classical example is MIPS per dollar, but there's a hundred other measurements like this, and not just in computers, also in biological technologies like genetic sequencing, the amount of data, the cost per base pair, brain data, spatial resolution of brain scanning. I could mention a lot of different things, nodes on the Internet, bits we move around on the Internet, bits we move around wirelessly. They they follow remarkably predictable trajectories. And those those predictable trajectories are exponential, not linear. And our intuition is not exponential, but linear. So people's expectations of the future are that things are going to continue at the current pace. So, for example, I I predicted that the general project would be finished on time in 15 years. Seven and a half years into this 15-year project, one percent of it had been done. So critics said, well, we told you this wasn't going to work. Here you did one percent in seven years, it's going to take 700 years. And that's a very good linear analysis, but in fact was done seven years later because it was doubling every year and one percent is only seven doublings from 100 percent. And there's many phenomena. Like that. I mean, in the class, I saw computing had grown in this exponential manner completely smoothly and predictably since the 1890 census and was not affected by little things that happened in the 20th century, like World War I, World War II, the Cold War, the Great Depression. It's continued for those 30 years. So I'm not just noticing this now and overfitting. The past data. I've been making these forward-looking predictions for thirty years. This is
0: uh, from the chart from the singularity is near the the uh, evolution of computer power and cost. Very linear.
1: Uh, well, that's linear on a on an algorithm- logarithmic, on a logarithmic scale. A logarithmic scale
0: yeah, right, which is exponential. So it's actually a, a, a hockey stick, really.
1: And it's actually a curve on an exponential because actually the rate of exponential growth has been growing exponentially. But you know, this is a billion dollars more powerful per dollar than the computer I use as a student, and we'll do it again in 25 years. Yeah. And we're shrinking the technology. It's 100,000 times smaller than that computer that I use as a student. In uh, 25 years, this will be the size of a blood cell and more powerful.
2: So, yeah, I think a lot of people get hung up when they start thinking about these things, saying, but how can we continue to do this? How, how can you prove that, that this is going to continue on a logarithmic scale? How, they want to know the underlying reasons. And a, a, a lot of what I've read ignores that and says, we're looking at the trends, we're not looking at the why's. Uh, is, is it safe to do that, to say, you know, to, to make that analysis?
1: Well, that's really what the whole book, The Singularity is Near, is about, is to make that case. And uh, every time one paradigm has run out of steam, we've gone to another paradigm. and creates research pressure to create the next paradigm. Uh, Moore's law, the shrinking of component sizes on an integrated circuit, was not the first paradigm to bring exponential growth to computing. It's the fifth. There were shrinking vacuum tubes in the 1950s. Uh, 1952, CBS predicted the election of Eisenhower with a vacuum tube-based computer, and then every year they were making the vacuum tubes smaller and smaller. I museum. We have a computer with little vacuum tubes. That finally hit a wall. It got to a point where they couldn't do that anymore and keep the vacuum, and that was the end of the shrinking of vacuum tubes. It was not the end of the exponential growth of computing and then went to the fourth paradigm, transistors, and then to the fifth paradigm, which is Moore's law and chips. And there's been regular predictions. Oh, that's
2: going to come to an end. Right. We'll so hit a I'm molecular about, limit or something like that.
1: Well, we're going to get to a limit. Uh, until, uh, well, Gordon Moore originally said 20, 2002 until now since 2022. By that time, the key features will be four nanometers, which is about 20 carbon atoms, and we won't be able to shrink them anymore. But, you know, we do live in a three-dimensional world. Chips are flat, they have multiple layers of material, but it's generally one layer of circuitry. We've taken a baby step in the third dimension with multi-layer chips, but uh, three-dimensional molecular computing will allow us to actually compute in three dimensions, which is what our brain does, even though it uses a very slow type of circuitry. And if you do the analysis, Based on what we've actually demonstrated at a small scale, molecular computing will enable these trends to go well into the late 21st century. But by that time, computers will be trillions, if not trillions, of trillions of times more powerful than human brains.
0: So, what do you think of uh, Jeff Hawkins' uh, Numenta and his attempt to kind of create a new kind of chip that simulates how the, the para- massively parallel brain?
1: Well, I think Hawkins uh, has a very uh, good insight as to the uniformity of the neocortex. The, the neocortex is this little region of the brain uh, that does something called thinking, which you're probably familiar with. And <laughs> some of us some are. Of us are. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and remarkably, all the thinking we do uses a, a common paradigm. There's a little pattern recognizer that recognizes patterns. And that pattern might be a certain uh, sequence of sounds, might be a certain sequence of shapes, so there's a bunch of, of recognizers that recognize a capital A. Well, it's actually the crossbar and the capital A. And those recognizers fire when they see, ah, crossbar. And they're happy and fire and send that signal up to another set of recognizers. When that recognizer gets a bunch of signals, it says, ah, capital A, and it sends that up. And uh, then it gets a bunch of signals from other recognizers and says, ah, oh, the word apple. And so on. Uh, at the very high level, highest level of this conceptual hierarchy in the neocortex, is recognizes that recognize things like humor and irony. And you might think that those are much more complicated, but actually, they're the same. They they just sit at, at the top end of this hierar- of this hierarchy. There was an incident or experiment where they were doing open brain surgery with this girl, which you can do because there's no pain receptors in the brain. And when, whenever they triggered a particular spot, this girl was taught to laugh. And they assumed, hmm. well, they must be triggering some automatic laugh reflex. But actually they discovered, no, they're actually triggering a point in her neocortex where she perceives humor. And she found everything hilarious <laughs> whenever they triggered this oh, spot. Interesting. Like, you guys are so funny standing there would be a <laughs> typical comment. So. Hawking's had this thesis, which he's uh, developed uh, further over the years, uh, building on this recognition that there's tremendous uniformity throughout the entire neocortex. It's a flat structure that sits outside the brain, it's folded up to increase the surface area, and has about a billion of these recognizers. And we actually have a pretty good idea of how they work. Conceptually, Watson, the recent you know Jeffrey playing computer, uses some biologically inspired paradigms that are really inspired by what we know about the type of recognition of patterns that are done in the neocortex. And and interestingly, uh, the neocortex can recognize complex three-dimensional forms, and you probably think that those are somehow three-dimensional recognizers, but actually they're all linear sequences of events. And and so they're basically LISP statements. Uh, so, if you remember back in the 80s, yeah. people were saying, Lisp really represents the way the human brain thinks, and everybody thought that was hype, and of course these companies actually didn't do that well. But it actually turns out to be true, that each of these billion little pattern recognizers basically learns one Lisp statement, one list huh. of, uh, of events uh, or other patterns. So, this structure enables us to do what is unique among humans. I mean, other mammals have one, but they're not big enough to really do it at human levels. You can take a whole bunch of ideas and call that an idea and give it a symbol and then use that symbol with other symbols representing other ideas and create another idea and give that a symbol and then use that in another set of ideas. And this whole hierarchy we call knowledge. And that was one of the enabling factors that it allowed us to, to create tools. The other one is this humble appendage here so that I can really grasp things and so my neocortex says wow you know i could take that branch and i could kind of strip it down and make a point and then i could reach a higher branch with it and i could create this tool well i then had actually an appendage that allowed me to carry that out and i created tools and then we used our tools to create the next tools and that's actually why uh, the power particularly is measured in terms of their information content at least that gives us a way of measuring them sort of like MIPS per dollar or bits of communication in the world. Uh, We always use the latest tools to create the next ones, and that's why they grow exponentially in power. So I have a whole theoretical analysis in the book, I have a mathematical derivation, but really the the core of the case is the empirical case. And I give example after example of all kinds of different trends in communications and in brain reverse engineering, in in biology and many other areas showing that if you can measure the underlying information properties of a technology, it follows these remarkably smooth exponential trajectories. And it does go through from paradigm to paradigm. Uh, So people say, well, there must be some, you know, ultimate limit. Is there a sixth
0: paradigm? Yeah, what's next?
1: Well, the sixth paradigm is three-dimensional molecular computing, and so what's the limit of that? And I actually worked that out in the book. And there is a limit, but it's not very limiting. You can then get into speculation of things like beyond nanocomputing, femtocomputing, mm. computing with components of atoms. I don't actually go there. And actually, Eric Drexler, who's the founder of nanotechnology, uh, is skeptical about femtocomputing. You don't have to go there. Just with nanocomputing, all the scenarios in my book become feasible. We'll be able to create a two-pound... You know computer the size of a laptop that is trillions of times more powerful than the human brain, just with the sixth paradigm
2: and there's an overriding principle at work too that we don't have to know what those advances are any more than the folks who worked on the first vacuum tubes understood three dimensional molecular computing it it's It will be discovered it's sort of seems like it's uh an inertia in a way
1: It's remarkable how predictable this is because you know what we're measuring is creativity, innovation, competition, free enterprise. You would think that that would be very unpredictable. Indeed, it is unpredictable at a project-by-project level. So it was clear that search engines were coming you know, 15 years ago. It wasn't clear which one of the 20 or 30 projects uh, that were actually known, and there were many more sort of laboring in garages that were unknown, uh, would prevail. Uh, it's, it's unpredictable which scientists, which project, which idea, which uh, platform will will prevail in the marketplace. But the overall results are follow these remarkably predictable trajectories, and people say, well, you know, they must, must be disrupted by war, depressions, the Great Recessions. But no, they weren't disrupted in the recent recession or the Great Depression or, or the two world wars or the Cold War or any of that. Uh, it's a remarkably smooth inexorable progression. So, so then people say, "Well, gee, if it's going to happen anyway, why don't we just all sit back and relax and
0: <laughs> let it happen?"
1: And then, of course, then it wouldn't happen. Right. right. But, but I but, think uh, we can count on people humans don't being work that
0: way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. People are motivated to create new breakthroughs and new knowledge. It's a little bit like thermodynamics. I mean, thermodynamics—if you look at the mathematics models, each particle is following a random walk. I can't tell where this molecule will be ten seconds from now. Nonetheless, the overall properties of the gas are highly predictable to a high level of precision according to the laws. They are considered laws, even though they are an emergent property of random behavior. Uh, and it's the same thing here. Each project's unpredictable, the overall result, if you can measure it, and you know, with information technology there are many such measures available. It follows an exponential trajectory. And it's important to point out that it's not um, intuitive. Uh, The reason that we can anticipate the future, the reason we are intelligent, is that it has a survival benefit. You know, I'm walking through the savannah, and I see this animal coming at me, and I can make a linear prediction where it's going to be and where I shouldn't be. And that worked fine, and it got hardwired in our brains. Uh, And so our intuition, even among sophisticated scientists, Uh, is linear. And even if someone's an expert in their field, they haven't really studied this issue of technological progression. So, invariably, when I get into debate, uh, it's the underlying issue, even if my critic doesn't realize it, is this difference in perspective of linear versus exponential. People say, well, Kurzweil doesn't understand the complexity of the human brain. That's not true. I've studied this for 50 years. I have a very good appreciation of what the level of complexity is. It's that they don't appreciate the tremendous power of exponential growth. You know, 30 steps line- linearly gets you to 30, 30 steps exponentially gets you to a billion. Uh, that's why this is a billion times more powerful, literally, per dollar in terms of MIPS, in terms of bits, memory, in terms of bits of communication, uh, compared to when I was a student. and. And we'll, I will do it again in 25 years.
0: So even though our brain isn't very good at perceiving this, I think you make a really strong case in, in this book, the uh, singularity is near, that uh, we are about to approach... There's, there's the paperback. I have the hardcover. They are about to approach the, uh, the singularity. Wait, can you define the singularity for us? What, what, what are you talking about when you say the singularity is near?
1: Well, singularity as it's used, and uh, it's, it was first used in this sense by Verna Vinge although it was used in passing just in a sentence by John von Neumann uh, originally where he he noticed this phenomena that things are getting faster and faster and growing exponentially and he said this is going to reach a singularity. Uh, He just said that in passing. Bernard Vinci developed the term more in the way we're using it and and then I've uh, developed my thesis of the law of accelerating returns and examined what this will mean, Uh, and we're really borrowing a metaphor from physics, which in turn actually borrowed this metaphor from mathematics. In mathematics, it's where the model breaks down. uh, If you divide, uh, let's say, a constant, 1, by x, as x approaches 0, that function approaches infinity. But actually, strictly speaking, in the axioms of real numbers, there's no infinity. So we actually say at when uh, one over x and x becomes zero, it's undefined. The model just breaks down. Same thing happens in physics. In physics, in theory, at the center of a black hole, there's an infinite level of mass and energy. But actually, quantum mechanics doesn't allow a literally infinite level. So it just becomes vast and unmeasurable. And beyond an event horizon, that's around the The singularity in physics—you really can't see very well, because any information that goes in it becomes (laughs) trapped inside the black hole. And and then, of course, you know, uh, recently Hawking admitted actually you can, with difficulty, see inside a black hole because events outside the black hole are quantum encrypted with events inside the black hole. And so, in theory, there's a way to see inside it, but not very easily. It's very so we're borrowing this this metaphor now for this future historical event where things become so different, so transformed, that it's hard to see beyond the event horizon. The singularity is this event horizon. And uh, according to my calculations, by 2029, we will achieve parity in terms of machine intelligence and human intelligence. It's 18 years. Uh, yeah, that actually will... Uh, At that point, computers will be able to uh, combine that subtlety and suppleness of human pattern recognition with ways in which computers are already superior. They can read billions of documents. I mean, consider Watson in the recent Jeopardy. uh, I mean, it, it had a higher score than the two best human players combined. Yet, and people have pointed this out, and I agree, its ability to understand human language was not quite up to those humans because it made some pretty stupid mistakes but it actually does have you know a fairly good ability to understand human language which is something that people thought would never happen it could understand that something was a metaphor that something was a joke that something was a pun and Do you think you a- you
0: mentioned in your blog post that it maybe had a sense of humor you think that that's fair
1: well, it was not programmed to have a sense of humor. That actually might have helped it with its uh, bedside, <laughs> bedside manner. Uh, it wasn't very gracious.
2: Yeah. When it, when an it inadvertent
0: won, but, sense of humor, I guess. Uh,
1: yeah, it did It did have an inadvertent uh, sense of humor in one case. Uh, but, th- but the point I was going to make, that even though its level of understanding was somewhat below the humans, it com- it was able to win anyway. Because whatever level it had, it was able to read and understand, at, the, at that level, all of Wikipedia, right. other encyclopedias, right. hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. By the way, its natural language ability was not just applied to the query, but to these hundreds of thousands of pages of stuff. Now, you and I could read Wikipedia. I think that's actually feasible. We wouldn't remember it. We don't have that kind of capacity. And in a few seconds, be able to then mentally access... All of this information, Watson could do that in the future. They will be at human levels and combine it then with the tremendous capacity at that point, reading billions of pages, ultimately everything out on the internet, and then we'll continue to get smarter I and mean, there 's the whole point where they can then access their own source code and make themselves smarter. The hardware's going to continue to grow in capacity uh, and by the way, it's not, in my view, an alien invasion of intelligent machines to displace us and compete with us. We're going to merge with these technologies. We already have. I've it's not
0: the, it's it. not the Terminator. You're not worried about the Terminator. I mean, I've
1: merged with this, and I'd like to put it in my body. <laughs> that's, and his, brain. that's your it's, cell phone, and <laughs> uh, I would not, lo- you know, lose it or, or forget it at home. Uh, it belongs in my body. That's where I will put it when it's small enough. True. Um, so we are we are already a human machine civilization. It's not. Out in one government lab somewhere, it's not an invasion for Mars. Uh, but anyway, we, if you follow these exponential trajectories, uh, the the non biological portion, the machine portion of our intelligence, will be a billion times greater than all of biological intelligence today among humans. That's such a by twenty forty five, and that's such a profound transformation that that qualifies to be. A very singular
0: change in human history and so we use this metaphor the I, singularity, and by which you mean we cannot predict what will happen on the other side
1: so. however i think actually we have enough intelligence to make some statements about what life will be like
0: well, tell us i und-
1: <laughs> understand it by analogy well, well in many ways we'll be doing the same thing we do now i mean lots of people like yourselves are actually creating knowledge which is to say radio programs or music or mm-hmm. graphic arts mm-hmm. or science or engineering or, or blog posts and uh, creating some kind of knowledge which itself doubles every 13 months by some measures. Uh, that was not true a hundred years ago. Most people worked in physical labor. In fact, a third of the workforce worked on farms and a third of the workforce worked in factories. In fact, if I were a Prussian futurist in 1900, I would I would say, okay, well two-thirds of you work on farms and factories, that'll be three percent and three percent in, in 100 years, in the year 2000, and they were go, my
0: God, we're all going to be out of work. And, <laughs> and, and starve. Say, <laughs> yeah, right. I'd say,
1: don't worry, you'll be doing Skype radio broadcasts <laughs> or designing websites. And, you'll
0: find something to do.
1: <laughs> uh, no one would know what I was talking about. <laughs> right. In fact, most of the employment today, these job categories didn't exist 50 years ago, let alone 100 right. years ago. And that's going to continue to be the case. We're, more and more, I mean, we're going to continue to move up Maslow's hierarchy. More and more people on the world will have their basic needs met. There's a certain, certain portion of the population which does already. The world is, you know, th- there's a something I run into as I go around the world and share these ideas is, you know, a lot of people think things are getting worse. The go, world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, the reason for that is we're actually doing a better job of knowing what's wrong with yes. this world. Yep. There's a, uh, you know, you guys, uh, in the blogosphere and radio land and are letting the world know and we can see right on our palm tops a battle in Fallujah or Tripoli right. and, or other problems. Uh, that may be disturbing, but it's a good thing because if we see problems, we, we are motivated to fix them. Uh, the reality is I have graphs which I've developed now for my presentations on things like education and wealth of nations and health and longevity, they're all very smoothly going up. Uh, we've doubled the number of years of schooling in both the developed and developing world uh, over the last 50 years. Uh, human longevity has gone from 37 in 1800 to you know, pushing 80 today and that's going to go into high gear now that health and medicine is an information technology.
2: Do we have any idea of how our culture will be able to adapt to the increasing acceleration we see this right now where, where folks who are, are you know, from a generation above take a little longer in most cases, not all cases, but they in, in general, take a little longer to adapt and say, well, I don't understand Twitter. Why would I ever want to use Twitter? And it just takes a little longer to penetrate or smartphones or computers even uh, in some cases. And as, as the advances get faster, the gaps between the folks who are used to one thing and another start to shorten is there any information about that kind of adaptation, that kind of cultural acceptance? Well,
1: I mean, there's always early and late adopters, and we have a million choices. In fact, we have almost a million choices just for iPhone apps.
0: Uh, <laughs> You're so right.
1: Yes. So some people sometimes ask, you know, well, maybe I'm going to opt out of being enhanced by this technology, and maybe I sure. don't want it, as if it were one thing. Go for I mean, it. There's going to be a million. Different choices. There will be nanobots that are so thoroughly tested and, and you know, augment your immune system and protect you from a long list of diseases and aging processes, and you would be irresponsible not to do it, not to give your kids it, just, just the way, say, it, certain childhood vaccines are considered.
2: Well, I uh, mean, but understand. there's a, vaccines are a good example of people sort of rebelling against this idea culturally, even though it is the responsible thing to do.
1: Right. But, you know, very few people don't use technology. Uh, Yugo de Garis has this idea of a war between, an art war, as he puts it, between the uh, cosmos, people who enhance themselves with these technologies, with these you know, very powerful machines in the future, and those who eschew that, which uh, she calls Terrans. Uh, mm. I pointed out that would be a very short war. <laughs> kind of like, kind of like a war between our military-industrial complex and the Amish. Right. Um, the fact the is, Amish very, are
2: scrappy, but yeah, I think I get your point. <laughs> and they do use some technologies yeah.
1: too. But uh, very few people are going to opt out completely. Very few people opt out completely today. I mean, even if they don't tweet, they're affected by all of these technologies. They probably have a cell phone. They've, they've got probably, a toilet. They've they've probably got indoor
2: plumbing. Well, it sounds like you're, you say people will will adapt faster. You know, the, the folks who say, oh, I don't want to deal with this newfangled technology will just sort of become a a, a minority.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, look at the effect it has. I mean, if you live in Libya, you're affected because... Revolution mm-hmm. was spawned by social networks. Even Facebook, if you don't
0: and, know what Twitter is, you're affected by it. Uh, absolutely,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's affecting human communication. I, I wrote in my first book, The Age of Intelligent Machines, that the Soviet Union would be swept away by the then-emerging decentralized communication, which mostly with email over tele, these teleset machines over phone lines, and also fax machines. And people thought that was nuts. The Soviet Union, which was then going strong and was a mighty superpower, that's going to be swept away. By a few teletype machines. But that's what happened. Then the, in that 1991 coup against Gorbachev, the photo op and, and the cover of Time Magazine was a picture of Yeltsin standing on a tank. Yeah. But, the, but that was the old way of thinking. The tank had nothing to do with right. it. It was, a, it was the hackers with their clandestine network, right. of basically a social network at that time, that kept everybody in the know. And the paradigm of Grabbing the central TV and radio station and the authorities keeping everything in the dark didn't work anymore.
0: Yeah, we saw that in Egypt. Yeah. yeah. They even turned off the Internet and it didn't work.
1: It didn't work. In fact, they can't keep it off because it would completely destroy the economy. And even in North Korea, information is is seeping in, but it's probably the only place in the world that really is trying to insulate the world from this kind of phenomenon. And even there, it's not going to work. Uh, so, it is a very democratizing technology, and information empowers people and it 's doing it everywhere in the world and You see people in these developing nations, Libya Egypt, where they're very sophisticated about the use of these technologies and these tools, and also the young people see uh, how the rest of the world shares knowledge and information and how they live and uh, and how their societies are governed uh, compared to other places and they uh, they got very strong ideas of what what about what they want and it's a very democratizing technology and also the tools of creativity are democratized so you know uh couple of kids at stanford can mm-hmm. you know, with a late dorm mm-hmm. uh late night dorm challenge created uh google right and uh kid and his uh his friends uh trying to Get a better way to meet other people uh, and for people to date.
0: And, <laughs> you put that uh, nicely, created, Ray. <laughs> created
1: uh, Facebook. <laughs> that's uh, a nice way to put
0: it. <laughs> well, Ray, you still said
1: actually a major application of Facebook. Uh,
0: yeah. Maybe the single most important. In Fantastic Voyage, I think it was that you said, uh, I want to live long enough to live forever. Um, do you want
1: Yeah, that's actually the subtitle of Fantastic Voyage live long enough to live forever. Uh, as reference really to the idea of a a bridge to a bridge to a bridge. So we don't have in our hands right now all the knowledge and tools uh, to live indefinitely, which I think is a proper expression of the goal, because I can never come on your program and say, you know, I've done it. I've succeeded. I've lived forever.
0: <laughs> we, well,
1: we won't uh, be there for that. Maybe we will. I hope we
2: can. Well, you can't. You, well, you, you can't. You got to stop living it, to be sure that you lived forever, which means you haven't lived forever. It's, so it's a bit well, of a conundrum. Never, yeah,
1: it's never forever, but we'll get to a point where we can back ourselves up, and even that. I mean, I've written it philosophically about that. Even if you have back up a process, it doesn't mean it's, uh, yeah. it's going to live forever. I mean, try restoring now some word processing file you wrote in WordStar. Right. And and good luck. Unless you, you know, maintain information, it doesn't live, and there's actually an important philosophical point there. But we will get, so we talk about a bridge to a bridge to a bridge. Bridge one is what you can do right now. That's actually a long discussion, but there's a lot you can do to slow down aging and disease processes and people realize. And most of these books are actually about that. But bridge two is the full flowering of this biotechnology revolution, which I've alluded to already because health and medicine was not an information technology. It was just hit or miss up until very recently. But now the cutting edge of it is to really understand the software biology and reprogram it just the way, I mean, this is reprogramming itself now. It's updating itself while we speak. I'm literally walking around with software that was evolved tens of thousands of years ago, in some cases millions of years ago, and it's not a metaphor. It is literally software. Your DNA strings of data, you know, 23,000 genes, uh, and some of the old uh, ideas about it were naive. one, One gene, one disease, one gene, one trait. But nonetheless, your genes do control your lives and they then express themselves as information and there's other levels of information processing with stem cells and so on, but we're learning how that information technology works. And we're also learning to modify it. RNA interference can turn genes off, new forms of Gene therapy can add new genes. I'd like to tell my fat and cell receptor gene, you don't need to hold on to every calorie anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm confident I'll have food tomorrow. Next hunting season will be good. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. And uh, <laughs> uh, that was actually tried in animal experiments, and these animals ate a lot and remained slim, and they got the benefits of being slim, and they lived 20% longer, and that's, that's being worked on by the and Diabetes Center with some pharmaceutical companies, and that's just one of the 23,000 genes we'd like to reprogram and there's other aspects of this it's a long discussion but we're ultimately going to be able to master and perfect uh... the very imperfect uh... processes of biology because when we evolved it was actually in the interest of the human species for people not to live past their twenties because by that time you brought up your kids and you're just using up the limited food and resources of the tribe Yeah, just long enough so, to lo- to
2: keep the species going
1: so, life expectancy was twenty-two or something uh, thousand years ago, thirty-seven in eighteen-hundred. Uh, the, the full flowering of the biotechnology revolution is only fifteen and twenty years away, is progressing exponentially, not linearly. A lot of people look at this and look at how long things took with the old paradigm of medicine and really fail to appreciate that, that it, despite the fact that medicine was linear, up until recently because it was not an information technology it's now going to progress in this exponential manner and the the golden age of biotechnology that's what we call the second bridge is only 15 20 years away the third bridge is the full of the nanotechnology revolution where we can build blood cell-sized devices to keep us healthy from inside that's at least a quintessential application i used to call it the, the killer app but that's not It's probably the right description (laughs) description, uh, for a health technology. But uh, if it sounds very futuristic to put uh, millions of little nanobots uh, in your bloodstream, there are precursors of this. There's dozens of animal experiments of putting blood cell-sized devices in the bloodstream. One scientist cured type 1 diabetes in rats with a blood cell-sized device with seven nanometer pores, lets insulin out in a controlled fashion, blocks antibodies. Uh, so these are early experiments, but uh, the golden age of that is 20, 25 years away. Uh, that will bring us to a point where we actually can access who we are and capture the information. It's, not a metaf- it's also not a metaphor to say that there's information in my brain that represents my memories, my skills, my personality. And that is not backed up. And that might sound ridiculous, but we, we would think it irresponsible not to back up. The information you have on your computers uh yet we walk around without backing up our mind files so oh, now people I'm, will now I'm be scared <laughs> oh boy you're right brain so, crash yeah uh, will you will you, you pour some, your, some brain, of your brain brain some you? of your brain is backed up if you lose the portion that parkinson's disease destroys at least in the first 10 or 12 years there's a, a an implant uh-huh. actually put in the body and then connected into the brain and it replaces the functionality of those of those neurons uh, it's an early, fairly simple example, but uh, we uh, and it's not person-specific, it's sort of species-specific. But ultimately, we will get to a point where we can capture this very person-specific information that defines who you are and back it up. Now, if you were to just take that and create another person in another substrate or an avatar in virtual reality, uh, you can make a strong philosophical argument that that's not me. But I think the real process is going to be one where we maintain the continuity of identity. We're going to be introducing more and more non-biological intelligence. You know, once that's inside our brains, talk to a human person, it'll be a hybrid, a cyborg, combination of Mm -hmm. biological and non-biological intelligence. The non-biological part, just like computers today, will also be out in the cloud, and so when you our thinking will be not only just inside our brains and not just in the biological and non-biological portion, but also out in the cloud. We'll have direct brain-to-brain communication. We'll be able to inhabit uh, very realistic virtual reality environments, incorporating all the senses. There's many other scenarios, but we're going to basically expand uh, who we are and back up all that information. Uh, Just, I mean, that'll happen automatically, because anything that's non-biological is backed up today.
2: When we get to that point, uh, do we not lose, but do we change the meaning of identity? Uh, we, and I'm thinking about in an infinitely copyable internet, it is impossible to own a file because you make hundreds of copies of it in the course of using it. Do do we run into that with our own identities? You know, once once you've backed up your identity as a as a store of information, that means it's copyable and infinitely copyable. Uh, and so your identity well, could spread out and, and encompass all of these different versions of you.
1: I mean, you're, you're uh, alluding to a deep philosophical question which has been debated. You don't have back- the answer? <laughs> well, I've, I haven't finished my answer yet. Okay. Uh, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: it's been debated, uh, actually going back to the Platonic Dialogues, where they, you know, imagine a scenario really not that different from this, and... Uh, Leibniz in the nineteenth century imagined that the brain actually was made up of little mechanisms. He didn't know about electronics. So he Monads, talked about yeah. He talked about mechanical mechanisms, but actually they were computing mechanisms. And then he imagined where's identity and where's consciousness. And um, and we accept this very routinely. Uh, we give an identity to a copyable software entity. Uh, we can, in fact, have avatars that have a personality and. They're not at human levels yet. Although some are getting actually fairly close, you know, on the Loebner Turing test, and uh, or take Watson. I mean, it's a software entity, runs on certain hardware, but it has a certain personality. And we accept the fact that it's copyable, uh, and we find that perplexing because we're so married to this idea of the software of our existence and our identity being married to one hardware substrate. And when that hardware crashes, the software disappears with it. And people imagine, in the scenarios I talk about, a loss of something essential. uh, But there's no loss. There's only actually a transcendence of limitations we've had. Uh, We still have a body. We'll still be able to love. In fact, we'll be much freer to love than we did before. Uh, we'll still have personalities. Uh, I don't believe consciousness or identity is substrate dependent. There are people walking around with computers in their bodies and connected into their brains already, uh, and we don't consider them less human. And I've actually talked to them, and, and they consider those those computers to be part of themselves. By and large, because yes, different people you get different answers, but. Uh, i think we're going to get there gradually and we'll get used to it you know things that seem startling even today uh once they happen it's amazing how quickly just people accept it. oh that's just everyday reality mm-hmm. i wrote about ebooks in the 1992 for the series of articles in the library journal and people thought that was crazy and mm-hmm. oh well maybe that'll happen a thousand years from now and now that it's happened is yeah of course not big a big deal,
0: deal.
1: yeah uh And generally, when technology is introduced, first they're introduced, they don't really work very well. People say, oh, well, it's not really such a big deal because it doesn't really work. And then gradually, you know, it works better and better. And by the time it works well, it's really inexpensive and ubiquitous. And then people say, well, it's not such a big deal. It's been around for a long time. And uh, so these things may seem startling, but they're going to happen. They're going to creep up on us. We'll start putting technologies in our bodies and brains to keep us healthier. Extend our memories, uh, and it's going to happen bit by bit. Uh, I don't think technology is separate from human beings. I mean, we are human-machine civilization. We're the only species that transcends our limitations. In terms of biology, that started a long time ago. As I said, uh, life expectancy was 20,000 years ago. So we will accept this. Uh, you can do a series of mental experiments with the kinds of questions you were alluding to and come out with reasonable answers. I mean, I discuss these issues in Chapter 7 of Singularities Near. I have a new book which I'm writing uh, called How the Mind Works and How to Build One. And I actually call it, refer to it as the mind in the title rather than the brain. Because mm. a mind is a brain Plus. that's conscious yeah. and has an identity. Right. And... But I don't believe that's a sort of a mystical addition. It's not. There's not a duality there. It's a, it's an emergent property of of the complex hierarchical system that the human brain constitutes.
0: Ray, you've made so many uh, accurate predictions uh, in your life. Are there any are any things do you thought that would happen that have just you realize no that that ain't gonna happen?
1: Well, I actually did an analysis. Uh, I uh, had 147 predictions in the Age of Spiritual Machines for the year 2009. So it was a good idea to look at those. And yeah. I also looked at some of the others that I've made over the last 25 years, including the ones in Age of Intelligent Machines, which I wrote in the 1980s. The Age of Spiritual Machines I wrote in the late 90s. It came out in 99. Uh, for the, I wrote it in ninety seven ninety eight. So it had these 147 predictions for 2009. Something like 86% were were basically correct so one that's wrong uh which ironically people uh tell me how uh praise me on is uh <laughs> of course that uh we would have uh driverless cars you know driven by ai uh, and in fact you know they do exist yeah the you were, Ra- uh, yeah well it is wrong because uh I looked carefully at the wording and it implied it would be pretty commonly used, and it's not commonly used. It's still certainly very experimental, and the, and the leaders of that field feel we're 10 years away from ubiquitous or common use, uh, and that's beyond my threshold. If something was like a year off, I would call it essentially correct, but uh, if it's 10 years off, it's like I rated it as wrong. Uh, although the technology is ahead of where most people have thought the Google cars have logged 140,000 miles of driving in cities and towns uh, without human drivers. There's a human in the car to take over, uh, but they don't need to. Uh, it's actually we're actually, I think, already at a point where they can do a better job than humans because that's not a very uh, difficult threshold.
0: You said that once the um, universe is saturated with intelligence. Uh, it will wake up, and that's God do you you stand by that is that is that a prediction uh, I mean I think or
2: is it google <laughs> is google God you know, uh,
0: god
1: it's consistent with what I've said. God is a term which uh, people refer to different concepts, so People ask, Do you believe in God? Uh, and people say yes or no, but then that's what you mean. As- of course, yeah. The says talk about the same thing. Right. Uh, I like the definition where God is uh, the ultimate in creativity, intelligence, beauty, love. Actually, these are all the things at the very highest level, conceptual level in our neocortex. Uh, and I do believe you know those qualities exist in the world. And so, if beauty and love and creativity is God, then I believe in those things, so I believe in God. Uh, and we will reach the highest expression of those when we've saturated the universe, turned it into what we call computronium, which is computation infused with all the software of the human-machine civilization, uh, with all the fantastic knowledge, which we've managed to then multiply and double, You know every year starting from now till say a hundred years from now or hundreds of years from now that'll be just a vast amount of of beauty and love and creativity and music and art and science and uh, so people imagine gee there's a certain amount to know and once we know all that what are we going to do we're going to sit back and do nothing uh... human knowledge has been growing and expanding exponentially too and you can see it even in fields like music and art you know when i was a kid there was classical music and pop music, and today there's a hundred different genres. And so, I mean, the amount of knowledge we're creating is vast. The more knowledge we create, the more we actually discover that we don't know. So our circle of ignorance also expands exponentially. We're always going to be on that frontier of knowledge. That is the job of the human civilization. In that regard, actually, we're carrying out uh, the... Cutting edge of the job of evolution because evolution created our species, and now we are now creating this this ex- explosion of knowledge. Uh, so I think that's about as godlike as we can uh, hope to become.
0: So you're an optimist.
1: Well, I've been accused of that. <laughs> um, and in some ways, I'm optimistic. I mean, you do have to have an optimistic personality to be an inventor and an entrepreneur. You sure do, yeah. Uh, You know, optimism is not just an idle prediction about the future. It's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you're more likely to have a positive outcome if you're optimistic than pessimistic. But I'm not a naive optimist, and I've actually written extensively about the downsides of these technologies. And technology is a double-edged sword. Fire cooked our meals and kept us warm thousands of years ago, but it was also, you, you know, could be destructive accidentally or intentionally, and. It's certainly true of today's tools, and we've seen plenty of that in the 20th century. 180 million people died in the wars of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and these new technologies are also very powerful. And around the time I was born, the human race you know, got used to an existential risk that had never existed before. We had a technology where we could destroy, in theory, and it wasn't so theoretical because I remember uh, these uh, drills in, in school where to would get under right. our desks so and duck put cover. our... Uh, uh, our arms behind our head, as if that was going to protect us from an atomic <laughs> explosion.
0: We were optimists. It's um, <laughs> a, a, a placebo. That's the definition yeah. of optimism.
1: So technology is a double-edged sword. I've written extensively about what the downsides are. Uh, in fact, a lot of the people who are very negative and considered pessimists, uh, like Bill McKibben, it's a friend of mine, and I, I respect him as an environmentalist, the first to write about global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wrote a book called Enough, basically uh, translates uh, as uh, enough already. These new technologies have been great, but still uh, enough is enough.
0: we got enough technology and,
1: and he 's opposed to the continuation right. of GNR, genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, and AI. Uh, and he cites my books as uh, you know and quotes me extensively in terms of my descriptions of the downsides. Mm. And I think we agree on the downsides. We disagree on the prescription. I don't think relinquishment is the answer. The answer is uh, actually to create defenses. I don't think relinquishment would work. It would just drive these technologies underground where they'd be more dangerous. Right.
2: Well, Europe tried it uh, in the, you know, 1200s yeah, it was and, called and, the dark ages. before. Yeah. yeah, a lot of times it's referred to as the Dark Ages. You, you get rid of uh, knowledge and, and technology. It didn't work out so well.
1: Exactly. And we still have a lot of, we have a moral imperative to continue. You know, there's very encouraging things happening with cancer. We're going to tell the cancer patients that no, we're Mm -hmm. canceling all that because it's too dangerous. Uh, And it is dangerous. I mean, a bioterrorist could take those same tools and create a new bioweapon. The right answer to that is, of course, to have the right ethical standards for responsible scientists, which, you know, we have the Asilomar guidelines in biotech. Those have actually worked quite well. And then to have a rapid response system where, when people do try to be destructive, we can detect that quickly and counteract it. I've worked with the army on that problem in terms of biological viruses. Uh, There are answers. We've done a good job in that regard, for example, with software viruses. We have a technological immune system. It'll never be perfect, but it actually does a pretty good job. Uh, So it's a complex issue. I'm not uh, naive uh, about these issues. I've written extensively about the dangers and I work, I've worked on uh, addressing them. And I, I think so, so the reason I communicate about these issues is we need to understand <coughs> the positive side, that the, the major problems that we struggle with, availability of water and food and housing and, and poverty and disease, really the only thing that can address these major challenges and uh, The only thing that will provide the scale to address them is the exponentially growing information technologies. On the other hand, there are new dangers, and we need to be aware of those and work on those also.
0: Uh, and
1: really it's to share that perspective with people that I communicate about it.
0: Ray's website is uh, Kurzweil AI, and the AI stands for acceleratingintelligence.net. Kurzweil,
1: yeah, Kurzweil net, yep. And we have a, a newsletter... Uh, Which is very widely read. It's free. You can sign up by just putting your email address on the home page, and you get a daily or a weekly version. It's actually remarkable with how many new things happen every day in these areas.
0: Well, and I do want to tell people uh, that the movie *Transcendent Man*, which is the you know kind of documentary about uh, Ray's life and ideas, is uh, traveling around the world. In fact, it's going to be in San Francisco uh, next. Um, uh, it'll
1: be in San Francisco in April. If you go to transcendentman.com, there's information about that screening. It's uh, it's a movie about me. It was made by Barry Ptolemy. Uh, Barry did a brilliant job, I think, of showing point and counterpoint and interweaving my life story. Um, and it's a beautifully made
0: movie. You can buy it online, uh, too. It's on, it's on iTunes. Right, it's
1: on yeah. iTunes. It's been the second most popular documentary in the country. Oh, that's neat. Um, it's on movies on demand, um, so I do recommend uh, people see that. It's a good introduction to these ideas.
0: Did, you were writing a book on the uh, based or a movie on the singularities near. Is that did that come out?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a movie that I've that I made uh, yeah. based on the singularities near, and that'll be out uh, later this year. Oh, it's, been doing, it's been doing. it traveling the festival circuit and
0: won some awards. And congratulations. I look forward to seeing that. Ray, it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, as always, and I have all your books, and uh, as you can see, they're well-thumbed. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and it, sometimes it reads like science fiction, uh, but it's so, uh, you know, solidly backed up by fact, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting.
1: Oh, well, it's great to talk to you. Yeah. And
0: Thanks for joining um, us.
1: Yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll meet again in 100 years, but
0: hopefully much sooner. I hope so. I look forward to that. Maybe our our substrates will be different, but uh, we, we can continue on. Substrate's not important. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, I gotta take this substrate out of here. I gotta get some, You can't <laughs> judge
2: a book by its substrate.
0: That's right. Thank you, Ray. Ray Kurzweil. Thank you. Ray. My pleasure. Take care. net. And uh, uh, once again, uh, this has been such a. It's so fun to do this show because we get to meet so many really smart and interesting people. Um, I didn't really uh, begin the show with a list of Ray's accomplishments. There are so many, um, but maybe go see the movie would be a, a good idea. He um, he's an inventor, as you as you heard, and a futurist, and has some brilliant ideas. And if you're going to pick one book, I guess you know the age of spiritual machines and the age of intelligent machines is great, but the singularity is near is the is the is the one I, that I think makes the best strongest case for what this future holds for us. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I then agree. I, and then for you know. If you want to live long enough to live forever, The Fantastic Voyage is a great book. He did that with uh, Terry Grossman, who is a physician. Uh, And that's it for this edition of uh, our show. Once again, uh, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, you have a chance to see Transcendent Man. Uh, It's coming uh, up on April, uh, let's get this right, 14th at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. And uh, there's video online uh, at transcendentman.com, but you can also get it on iTunes and elsewhere and i feel bad because you know but i just i didn't want to like kind of go through the litany but i mean he he created the synthesizer the first he created the speech the text to speech engine that stevie wonder used and then he made a synthesizer he got to know stevie made this amazing kurzweil synthesizer um he's just done so many interesting things i'll have to have him back
2: and say okay we we talked about the deep stuff let's talk about the let's talk about about
0: stevie yeah talk about stevie Uh, he uh, was, um, let's see, when he was a teenager, he created um, a pattern recognition program that analyzed the works of classical composers. This is in high school. And then synthesized its own song in the same style. And went on TV. Yeah. Which back then was a huge
2: deal. He was on I've Got a Secret. He had had three channels. I wonder if I could, I bet you it's in the movie. I'm sure there's at least a clip or two of it.
0: Yeah. It'd be fun to see Ray Kurzweil as a teenager on I've Got a Secret. Yeah. Showing off his synthesizer. Um, so really a brilliant guy. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people who talked about his ideas in a lot of different ways. Yeah, here it is. Look at this. I found it. Um, but uh, I think it's food for thought and certainly um, something that we need to think about um, in, uh, you know, as we approach this time where the machines are, you know, no doubt about it, getting smarter. This is Ray Kurzweil. Oh, no, I've got a secret.
2: This
0: goes back a few years. 1965.
1: First of all, would you tell the folks your name and the size of the curtain that's moving in? Oh, <laughs> I'm right, sorry. Your name, please. Okay. My name is Raymond Kurzweil, and I'm from Queens, New York. Queens, New York. Well, panel, Raymond and I just happen to have uh, brought along this little piano here, as you 17. see. And Raymond, in addition, also happens to have, as uh, the old saying goes, happens to have a piece of music with him. Uh, and before we show the audience what his uh,
2: secret is, uh, we have just a few seconds for Raymond to play this piece of music. Raymond, the piano's all yours.
0: Lead them because it's not. At least
2: Very nicely played, and now uh, your performance, of course, leads into
1: your secret. So if you'll whisper it to me, we'll let everybody Steve at home out. know what's
2: up. Ryan Seacrest of its guy
0: designed and built an electronic uh, right. computer. Wow, that certainly deserves applause. But uh, it's all <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, man. and we'll see you next time. I'm sure we'll have another great guest on Triangulation. Bye-bye.